0: St. Paul's longest letter in the New Testament, written to, the, le- written to the, the church in Rome, is a church that he did not plant, nor did he even visit prior to writing this letter. Um, Paul was a man who, maybe you know or don't, um, was uh, born in Tarsus, in what we would call uh, Turkey, Asia Minor, born to um, parents who were observant, strict Jews, but also whose father was a Roman citizen. And so Paul is sort of a a, a rare uh, type of person in the ancient world. And maybe you know something about his amazing conversion to Christianity, um, if even conversion is the right word. Uh, the story we sort of pick up um, begins with a young man, Saul, a, uh, a Pharisee. Paul also had, he had both a a a Roman name and a a Jewish name. Saul would be what he'd been called by his Jewish friends. And in the city of Jerusalem, um, he was present at the stoning to death of the first Christian martyr, a fellow called Stephen. In fact, as it happened that people picked up stones and began to throw them at this young man, Stephen, for being a follower of Jesus, they took off their coats and they threw them at the feet of Saul. And so he wasn't just sort of a... A tacit uh approver he might have actually been the leader of this group that began to to stone to death and kill the very first christian martyr stephen after that paul became very very much more zealous to root out this sect called uh jesus followers or followers of the way or later christians he um he wanted to get rid of them he 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 had sought to uh to destroy them completely from the face of the earth, he he kind of brought together a posse and and went out after them uh, with letters from the leadership in Jerusalem to root out these Christians, and um, and so it was that uh, he saw them not just because remember these followers of Jesus were Jewish, they were they were people who were Jewish by by um, by genetics they were they were members of his own race of people. Ethnically, they were indifferent, but they were following Jesus, which they did not see as a new religion. The followers of Jesus saw him as the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. But Paul did not see them at all like that. He saw them as sort of nutjobs, as, as foreign heretics who were destroying the people of Israel and who were leading people astray. And so, as I said, he, he sort of organized this posse to go after them. He's uh, unwilling to allow them to have this latitude of thinking, even though Paul himself is a very liberal thinker. He allows for, this, uh, for uh, a, a number, even in his earlier life, of, of various opinions, but here he will not allow it. And having organized this posse, he sets off for the city called Damascus, about 130 miles to the north. Because he hears that there's a group of these Christians who are gathering and worshiping and spreading this news of Jesus in the city of Damascus. So Paul and his friends mounted on horseback, head off to Damascus. And when they're just about to the city, suddenly there's this massive bright flashing light from the sky. The horses um, are terrified. The men are thrown from the horseback onto the ground. And the light is so bright that they're blinded. They cannot see. And Paul hears this voice voice coming from the heavens, a very loud voice that says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He can't see. And so he says, who are you? I, I don't even know who you are. And the voice says, Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting, get up and go to Damascus and you'll be shown what to do. And it's after that that, that Saul becomes converted Saul. He becomes uh, one of the people that he sought to persecute, one of the people he sought to put to death. He becomes a member. And not only a member, he suddenly becomes uh, the, the, the main missionary thrust into the world. Suddenly, it took years. But a- after a period of time, he becomes Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. And his, his life is radically changed. Many years into his ministry, he hears about problems that are going on in this church in Rome. And so he writes this letter because the problems are serious. Remember, being a Christian had nothing to do with one's ethnicity. Most of the church was Jewish, even at this time. Paul was just, um, he was writing to these, these people who were mostly Jewish, but there was this suddenly burgeoning Gentile population, especially in the city of Rome. And um, he writes this letter because there are some real problems going on. And the problems have to do with, with the rift between Jews and Gentiles. Um, I think it would be important to understand that when when we think of the church, I think a lot of us think of, of the church in terms of those um, ethnic identities. You know, that being Jewish meant somehow not being Christian, but that's absolutely not the case. Uh, N.T. Wright talks about the fact that the church... ...is this branch that's grafted into the tree of Israel. That that the Gentile Christians have actually been grafted into Israel. The church is what N.T. Wright calls the Israel of God. It's not a question of whether or not Jews can become Christians. It's a fact that Christian Gentile Christians have been made into the body of Israel. Paul uses in chapter 9 of Romans this tree illustration... I know almost nothing about horticulture. Talk with Deb about this. But I understand that people can actually, you could take a, a, an apple tree and you could you could bore out a hole at a right time and, and, and graft into the side of that tree a branch from a pear tree. And that apple tree will then begin to produce from that branch pears. It's a, it's a possible, this is the image that Paul says. There was an olive tree planted by God. And he found this wild olive tree. And he grafts it into the side of this, this native one that he had planted. That's the image. But in the ancient world, there were obvious markers for those who were Jewish. If you, as there are today, if you were an Orthodox observant Jew, there were these obvious markers that pointed out that you were such. And you know what they are. Particular style of dress. Hairstyle. Most of them had to do for men. Um, there were uh, dietary restrictions. There were schedule restrictions. You couldn't work on Saturday, the Sabbath, beginning at sundown on Friday. Uh, there were a whole calendar of scheduled days: Passover, and Feast of Weeks, Booths, Tabernacles. All these different. Hi, how are you? Uh, all these different uh, festivals that were that were part of their lifestyle, and of course, there was this issue of circumcision for men. But the big markers, restrictive diet and no participation in idolatry. To be a faithful Jew, you could not have anything to do with participation in any form of idol worship. And idol worship, idolatry, was the way most of the world functioned. We understand. We kind of go through our life with this um, sense of religious uh, pluralism as if it's just part of the way that people live, you know. Like, you know, she's a Muslim and he's a Jew and she's a Christian and you know they're Sikhs and we just we just live like that. But in the ancient world, it was different. It was idolatry in a in a pagan way. It was the worship of the the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, and so everywhere you looked, there was worship to Aphrodite and and Zeus and to Hermes and Apollo, and Dionysus, and Artemis, and on and on. And there were these massive temples. And it was so woven into the warp and woof of of a community that that, um, to, to, to be part of a community meant that you participated in this worship. You couldn't be a member of a trade guild if you wouldn't participate in the worship of these Greek and Roman gods. You couldn't be involved in politics if you wouldn't worship these gods. And so to understand how interwoven, except for the Jews, the Jews were given special dispensation, but they usually weren't allowed to participate in politics still because they wouldn't sacrifice to the gods. Now, suddenly you have all these Gentiles who are coming into the church. They're coming into this community. It's largely Jewish has begun to worship Jesus and follow him as the as the fulfillment of, of Israel's worship. And now you have all these newly um, converted Gentiles who've given up their idolatrous practices and are now worshiping the God of Israel. And they're suffering for it. They're taking a huge hit. They're no longer permitted to be uh, tradesmen. They're no longer permitted to be involved in politics. They're ostracized from their friendships and families and 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 life has become very difficult for them. And here's where the real rubber kind of meets the road. In Rome, there were all, and elsewhere in the Greco-Roman world, there were these temples these various gods. And when the worshippers would go to worship these gods, they would offer animal sacrifice. Cows, bulls, goats. They would be slaughtered in the temple. And then, after the worship was over, a butcher would come, collect these these slain animals, take them, butcher them, and sell them in the markets. And they often were the best animals, the choicest meats, and they were sold at reduced prices. Now imagine, you're a new Christian, a Gentile Christian, you're suffering, finances are, are tight, and you can buy the best food at a cheap price. And that's exactly what they did. They would buy these um, animals, this meat that was sacrificed to idols. And they would say to themselves, we're not worshipping the idol. We're just eating the meat. But the Jewish Christians saw this and they found it to be outrageous. How can you even get close to participating in this? How can you have anything to do? You know where that meat came from. How could you possibly eat that? And there's a big fight going on. You've been in this kitchen, haven't you? <laughs> You've seen this this um, this dispute between husband and wife, right? Or brother and sister. All of a sudden, everything is coming out. All the problems. It's a kitchen sink sort of argument. And the Jews are saying, you haven't been dressing properly. You don't wear your hair right. You, you, most of the men aren't circumcised. And now you're buying this meat offered to idols. Are you people even really worshippers of God? And the Gentile Christians are saying, "We've given up everything. We've done er- give up everything to follow you. The only thing we're doing is eating below, you know, steak at baloney prices. What are you complaining about? Back off." So there's a big outrageous kind of Paul writes his whole letter to the Romans, his longest letter in the New Testament, to address this issue. But he doesn't go right at it. He kind of circles around it's a long, it takes him 13 chapters to get to where he wants to address the problem. And he builds up to it saying this. You're a Jew, you're a Gentile. It really doesn't matter. You both stand equally condemned in the sight of God. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what he says. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't, you, all of us are. All of us are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We've all participated in the original sin. And it is equally distributed. And then he finally, in chapter 5, he gets to this point where he writes this. Therefore, as one trespass, just one sin, led to the condemnation of all people, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification of all people. And then he says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Nobody has an excuse. You've all sinned. In fact, the more you sin, the more sin it came. And and the only answer was what God sent in Jesus Christ. More sin just brought about more grace. And the logic is... If more sin brought about more grace, and you want more grace, what do you need to do? Sin more, right? That seems to be the obvious thing. And this is where our text picks up. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So, three questions. What shall we say then? What does he mean? I mean, he means what program for life are we going to have? What's our decision? How are we going to move forward from this recognition? But What's our plan? Shall we keep on sinning, question two? So that grace may abound? This is a rhetorical question, but he can't let it go, can he? It's one of, those, one of those rhetorical questions that's so important you have to give the answer for the person lest they miss it. Shall we keep on sinning so that we can get more grace? No. By no means, never, ever let it be said. The old King James Version translates this God forbid. That's how you said no, never in Elizabethan English. <laughs> God forbid, no, never. Can't happen. Question three How can we who died to sin keep living in it? You know, you can't call yourself a vegetarian and eat meat. You just can't. I mean, that's, you either are or you're not, right? You can't say you're in, in recovery while you're sitting at a bar. You know, Either you are or you're not. Paul says you cannot call yourself a Christian while you continue to live in sin. Period. And so the question comes, well, does that mean that Christians never sin? No, that's not what it means. It does not mean that at all. It means Christians do not set out a plan to keep on sinning. They don't wink and nudge at sin. They don't say it doesn't matter. You see, this is the way I am. They don't set up a plan that continues to live and perpetuate that behavior. They confess their sins. They repent of their sins. They do all in their power to stay away from him. They come to the Eucharist to find power and grace to overcome sin. They don't excuse it and they don't justify it. What then is sin? What does it mean to sin against God? You can't be like me. I went to Asbury Theological Seminary... A, um, a Methodist school that uh, it comes in the Anglican tradition of piety, and um, and not come across this definition from Susanna Wesley, an Anglican mother, who said to her young son John, this quote: Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes relish off your uh, takes off your relish for spiritual things. Whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin for you, however innocent it may seem itself. That's a mouthful. I want to give it to you again because I think this may be one of the most important quotes that anybody's ever said on the, the subject of sin. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God... What takes the relish off of spiritual things. Whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind. That thing for you is sin. However innocent it may seem itself. How do you know when sin occurs? Because guilt comes with it. Now I know there's a lot of false guilt. And preachers have have brought this about more than perhaps any other group of people in the history of, of the world. They have made things sin. So that even when it's not sin, people feel guilt about it. They've made things that are are safe and and fine and, and even good, and they've turned them into sin. That is not what sin is. But still, when there's true sin, it does come with guilt. When we avoid God's law, when we break it, it comes with guilt. Now for a little specificity. Narrow this thing down. What is it that Paul's talking about? What specific sin is he dealing with? And it is what C.S. Lewis calls the only true sin. There's really only one. Pride. Arrogance. To the Jewish Christians, he says, stop judging. It's not your job to judge your Gentile sisters and brothers. And to the Gentile Christians, he says, why would you trample over the consciences of your friends, of your brother and sisters who are Jewish, who see you eating this food and they don't understand it? It doesn't comport. You you flaunt your freedom. And you're both arrogant and you're both wrong. He he eventually comes to say this. I think it slips out. He eventually says, the Gentiles are right. There's no such thing as, as contaminated food. But they're wrong in the fact that they eat it in front of other people, knowing how it hurts their consciences. You can be right and wrong at the same time. I was listening to a a, a podcast, uh, and it was was this woman who was doing this marriage counseling, and and this couple was fighting. And and she said to them at one point, you can either be right or be married. (laughs) And anybody who's ever been married knows that one, right? (laughs) You can either be right or you can be married. We live in a world where we all have to be right. And we have to be heard being right. Paul's his big approach here, arrogance is the root of all of the sin. It is the sin. It is arrogance that, that causes people to think that they have it right and they don't care. And whatever subject it is upon which you feel and which I feel most learned, is the area where we can have the greatest level of ignorance and the greatest level of arrogance we feel like we know so much about something maybe not so much i remember one time a a a person was um was preaching on i think it was on a, we were watching a video or something with a friends of ours and um and i remember this woman becky she says um what an absolute combination of perfect ignorance and perfect arrogance. <laughs> You're right. It's so much so. Not sinning takes practice. Not sinning takes determination. Not sinning takes the very grace of God. It's something we continually fail at and but need to continually work at. And not sinning with arrogance means practicing humility. It means working at being humble. It means asking God to help us in this area. Because listen to me, arrogance leads to hostility always. Arrogance leads to cruelty. Arrogance leads to division and selfishness and hurt. Arrogance leads to pain. It leads to exploitation. It leads to taking and not giving. And arrogance always leads to misery. It always leads to unhappiness. It destroys relationships. It destroys one's sense of well-being. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in arrogance that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who died to arrogance keep living in it?